people are eating more and they're eating larger portions. I actually think that larger portions are a sufficient explanation for obesity. You don't really need anything more complicated than that. Welcome back to another episode of El Podcast. Today's guest is Dr. Marion Nessel, who is a highly respected expert in nutrition and food politics. She's a professor emerita at New York University and has dedicated her career to studying how food choices are influenced by science, money, politics, and marketing. Dr. Nessel has written many important books, including Food Politics and Soda Politics, and has received numerous awards during her career. Marion recently published her memoir, Slow Cooked, An Unexpected Life in Food Politics, where she shares her late-in-life success as a food advocate and exposes the influence of the food industry on our diets, which is today's topic on El Podcast. Thank you so much, Marion, for joining us. No, it's my pleasure. So in your book, in your memoir, Slow Cooked, you reflected back on your memorable dinner with Julia Child. You mentioned that she initially saw you, and this is your quote, as the enemy of food. How did this experience influence your understanding of the intersection between food, taste, and nutrition, and what was it like having a home-cooked meal by the famous Julia Child? Well, the story that I tell in the memoir is about this dinner that got arranged with Julia. I was so starstruck and completely awestruck. I mean, I was going to meet Julia Child. I had cooked from Julia Child. There was a period in my early, when my kids were little, when I traveled with a, my social circle involved people who did what I now think of as competitive home cooking, where everybody tried to outcook everybody else. And we were all cooking from mastering the art of French cooking. So I had met somebody who knew Julia really well and knew that Julia complained bitterly about how nutritionists were ruining food for the world. You know, no butter? What do you mean, no butter? And she said, well, maybe if Julia met you, then she would change her mind about nutritionists. So she arranged this dinner. It was going to be at her home. This is Nancy Jenkins. And it was going to be at Nancy's home. But then Nancy broke her foot and and couldn't host the dinner because she was on crutches and it was really a mess. She recovered, but it was really a mess. And so the dinner was moved to Julia's house. I couldn't have been more thrilled. And I walked in with somebody else who had been invited and I could tell from the minute I walked in that this was going to be a disastrous evening. This was not going to be a warm, loving uh, event. It was going to be hostility from the get-go. And I was very surprised by it because I expected her, I expected Julia Child to be polite. If, you know, if not warm and welcoming, then at least polite and open to whatever, here I was, a guest in her kitchen, the very same kitchen that's now at the Smithsonian in Washington, D.C. It's just weird to see it there. And it was just this one hostile comment after another after another. And I had brought my copy 
of mastering the art of French cooking for her to see if she would sign it for me. And one look at it, and you could tell it had been used. It had pages stuck together. It was spattered. The pages were yellowed. It was obviously a very heavily used book. She didn't respond to it at all and wrote me a very, I mean, she signed it, but it was very cool. And it took years before that chill warmed up. So I tell the story about that in the book. It was a traumatic incident. It really was. And on the other hand, it was part of a large number of experiences like that. As I realized when I finished the book, I was telling one story like that after another, where whatever it was I was doing was being treated with a great deal of hostility, and then after a while it warmed up. But it took a while. Yeah, and she also wrote a forward to one of your other books, didn't she? Didn't she blurb for it. Or blurb for it, okay. Well, she had made a decision, Michael Pollan does the same, no blurbs. And I can understand it because you get sent a large number of books if you're doing blurbs. And I get sent a large number of books, but I like reading them, so I'm, I'm happy to do them. It's how I keep up. But she had decided she wasn't going to do any more blurbs, and then her publicist, Fern Berman, talked her into it, which I thought was just the most wonderful thing. I was thrilled. Yeah, that's, pretty, that's a pretty awesome story. So as a senior nutrition policy advisor for the Department of Health and Human Services in the 1980s, you had the opportunity to work on the Surgeon General's Report on Nutrition and Health, which was the first and only report of its kind. Can you explain the process of how this report got produced and your overall experience of working in our nation's capital? Yes. Well, I refer to my two years in Washington as my two years in federal prison. Uh, it was it was really a rough experience. I had come there from Berkeley, where I have to say, of uh, you know, coming from the Berkeley free speech movement and some of those other Berkeley movements. We were a little vague on the difference between Republicans and Democrats in those days. Oh, boy, did I learn the difference quickly. And I tell the story in my book, Food Politics, that on my first day in the job in Washington, I was told by the person who directed the office that no matter what the research showed, the Surgeon General's report on nutrition and health would not say eat less meat because it couldn't, because if it did, the Department of Agriculture would complain, and it would complain to Congress, and Congress would stop the report. And this was not apparent only fantasy. It was an absolute understanding of the way Washington worked, which came as a big shock to me. I was really not aware of that. One of my experiences in Washington was to learn a lot that I didn't even know I didn't know. It was a huge, huge learning curve, I was in trouble all the time, practically from the day I arrived until the time I left, in part because if you work for an agency in Washington, you're not supposed to be partisan. And I have opinions. (laughs) (laughs) I have opinions. And I think of myself as an advocate for healthy diets and diets that are good for people and the planet. And advocacy is inappropriate in Washington. If you work for a federal agency, you're supposed to keep your mouth shut about what you think and just do your job. And so I was constantly in trouble um, there, I just from the get-go, and I think within a very, very few months, 
of being there, it was obvious to me that this was not this, you know, I was going to do the Surgeon General's report, but I had to get out of there. And as I said in my book, I discovered pretty quickly that people in Washington, D.C. fell into two categories. Those who liked Washington better than New York City and those who liked New York City better than Washington. It was pretty clear which category I fell into very early on. And I started looking for jobs in New York right away. Took a long time to find one, but I eventually did, and here I am. Yeah, I just find it weird that you have the United States Department of Agriculture, the USDA, which is in charge of the dietary guidelines, yet it seems like it's a conflict of interest as the USDA, on one hand, is trying to promote agriculture, and then on the other hand, is trying to tell you what the healthiest way to eat you know, to promote diets that have less meat, which is what current dietary guidelines are doing. The Department of Agriculture isn't completely in charge. It shares the dietary guidelines with Health and Human Services, and they alternate being in charge. The Department of Agriculture is, however, in charge of the food guide, and the, which is now the My Plate Food Guide, and which used to be the Pyramid. And it is in charge of that, and that's where the conflicts of interest really come out. But right now, the Department of Agriculture is really, you know, they're the good guys on dietary guidelines. I mean, so much depends on which political party is in power. And this is Democratic administration. The appointees of the Department of Agriculture are really pretty good. They're doing as good a job as can be done. And I have high hopes for the next round of dietary guidelines. We'll see. You worked in Washington, D.C. in the 1980s. So you're talking close to kind of 40 years ago. You described it as being basically in federal prison. I mean, how much worse and more partisan has it gotten and more bureaucratic? We often hear today of the administrative state. It seems like it's certainly gotten more, more intense. The politics have intensified since when you were working for Washington in 1986 or 87? 86 to 88. I was there during the Reagan administration. I worked for a Republican administration, and it was strict, and you had to be careful. And as I said, I got into trouble constantly. But you could get your job done. I'm not sure that that got harder and harder and harder to do in the food and nutrition area as the Republican presidents came in, the Obamas were an exception, but they were thwarted in every possible way by Republican pushback on what they were trying to do. So as the country has gotten more politically polarized, Washington has gotten more politically polarized. And it's much, much more polarized now than it was in my day, which seemed soft in comparison to what's going on now. So I was able to get away with a lot that I don't think I could have gotten away with now. Right. Um, I mean, even even so, or I would have been even in more trouble right. if hired, or, you know, or just out of there. And I worked in an office that had very, very high ethical standards. I mean, that was another thing, so that because the person who ran the office was a longtime political appointee who had lasted through several administrations and really knew how to do things, one of the things that I found so difficult was that the ethical standards were so high that you couldn't take a vacation day. Or, you know, I mean, it was, uh, 
you couldn't come late to work. I mean, you couldn't let anybody buy you lunch. The standards were very, very high. And I respected those standards. I just found it very difficult to live with. In your book, speaking about kind of conflicts of interest between researchers and the industry, you write, I was invited to speak at one Old Ways conference after another, each more fabulous than the next. I went to Old Ways conferences in Spain, Italy, Greece, Morocco, Tunisia, and Argentina. We were taken on field trips to eat with Bedouins in the High Atlas Mountains. These trips were so luxurious and so informative that I cannot believe how lucky I was to be included. A little later in the chapter, you write, I reviewed research on how food industry funding influences nutrition research and dietary advice and how poorly that influence is recognized by recipients. Can you elaborate on the influence of food industry funding on nutrition research and dietary advice and why this influence is often unrecognized by those that receive lavish trips and receive funding from it? Well, let's deal with the olive oil, the International Olive Oil Council first, because they were the principal funder of the old ways trips. And I have to say, those old ways trips were magnificent. And not only did I get to go to places that I never would have been able to go to otherwise and stay in places that I never would have been able to afford, but also also the other people who were on the trip were phenomenal people to get to know and I attribute what I learned on those trips to the development of food studies at NYU. I knew that the time was right for food studies programs because of everybody I was meeting on those trips. But I never really, while I was on them, it it took a while before I got excruciatingly uncomfortable about the olive oil sponsorship. The trips were all in olive oil-growing countries, or they were in places where there wasn't much olive oil being sold and they thought they could open up those markets. Argentina, for example, was one of those. There were trips to Japan that I didn't go on, but those trips were aimed at trying to sell olive oil in Asian countries. And as it got more and more uncomfortable, I got into, I started getting into trouble in with old ways as well. But I ended up you know, years and years later, writing a book called Unsavory Truth, How the Food Industry Skews the Science of What We Eat, because I was seeing more and more food and nutrition research that was sponsored by food companies, where if you knew, and you could tell by looking at the title of the article, that the only reason this study could have been done was because somebody paid for it. And I could recognize who the sponsor was by looking at the title of the study. And so I started looking into that. I started collecting industry-funded studies and posting them on my website, foodpolitics.com. I did that very compulsively for about a year. And at the end of the year, I had 168 studies that had been sponsored by food companies. And of those, 156 had results that were favorable to the sponsor's interest. Okay, this wasn't a serious, systematic, scientific study. But what was amazing about it was how easy it was to find industry-funded studies that came out with favorable results and how hard it was to find industry-funded studies that didn't and how many industries were involved. Any food that you could think of 
has a trade association that's paying for research that they can use in marketing. And it, I got more and more and more annoyed about it because I think it doesn't look good. It's the conflicts of interest are there. And as I did not for a long time recognize what the influence was of the Olive Oil Council and what everybody was saying about Mediterranean diets, people don't like to think that money influences them and really don't recognize it. And there's an enormous amount of research on industry sponsorship of research, mostly done on the pharmaceutical drug industry, where there have been studies that show that all you have to do is give a physician a pen and a pad of paper with a drug industry logo on it, and that physician will start writing more prescriptions for that drug. And if you ask the physician, are you writing more prescriptions for that drug now? They won't see it. They won't see it. And so there's something about the way the human mind works that dismisses that kind of influence, but it is extremely pervasive. And there is an enormous amount of research demonstrating influence of industry funding and its non-recognition. It wasn't intentional. People aren't selling out. It's much more complicated than that. They're willing to take the money. They take the money. They don't realize how it skews the research, mostly in the way the research question is designed. And that's easy to explain. I get letters from free trade associations all the time saying, we have $50,000 and we're looking for studies that will show the benefit of our product. And so, okay. They're only going to get proposals that are designed to show benefit. And if the proposals don't look like they're going to show benefit, they're not going to get funded. That's how it works. And nobody really realizes it. And what people who take industry funding tell me is, I don't understand what you're upset about. Science is science. What's wrong? You know, you're not criticizing the science. Why are you criticizing it? Well, I'm not criticizing the science because the science was done fine, but it was what the science was aiming to do that's a problem, and it's just not recognized. So I think it's really bad. Uh, I post on my website every Monday an industry-funded study, each funnier than the next. I think you have to have a sense of humor about them. I, I find some of them hilarious. I think the most recent one was about water that has oxygen bubbles in it that's supposed to improve exercise to tolerance. I mean, you can't make this stuff up. And they've got a study to prove it. they got a study to prove everything. I saw a study that was talking about ice cream and probiotics and how ice cream is one of the best foods for probiotics. And it's like, well, what about all the, the sugar and everything else? Is there a particular year that you noticed where you really saw a lot of industry-funded food studies? Has it always been this way? Or was there a tipping point when you really noticed this? Got it well, intensified? It wasn't, it wasn't disclosed for a long time. The disclosures didn't really start until the 1980s in some of the medical journals. They took much, much longer to get into the nutrition journals. Now, pretty much every journal asks authors to disclose who paid for the study and any conflicts of interest that they have, which makes it much easier to notice these things. 
So if I see a study with a title that says, you know, oxygen bubbled water improves exercise tolerance, my first question is who paid for this? And I can go right to the disclosure statements in the study and see that the maker of the oxygen bubbly product is the who paid for it. Or you can predict that. And if I know who paid for a study, I can predict what the science showed. I'm finding it easier and easier all the time. And certainly now I barely have to look in the literature to find these people, send them to me constantly. People are constantly sending me each example funnier and more ridiculous than the next. <laughs> I think it's absurd to think that one single food is going to make a substantial difference to your health when you're eating dozens and dozens of different kinds of foods. So, or one food or one supplement or one nutrient is just very, very hard to imagine how they could make a real, a measurable difference. But that's what these studies show. And so I'm dubious about the whole thing. I think these are very hard studies to do. They're very hard to control. Um, you know, I'm, I'm dubious. Yeah, like you get every every year you seem to get like a new superfood. I mean, for a while there was acai berries. Avocado, I think, was one for a while. It just seems like every year there's a new study coming out with a new superfood. I mean, there isn't a single food that I can think of that's a real food that doesn't have research behind it to show that it's a superfood. All fruits and vegetables are superfoods. Every single one of them, you know, enjoy. Pick the ones you like. And so every Monday I post some industry-funded study or some industry-funded something that I think is either outrageous or funny or so ridiculous that all you can do is laugh. The only thing that it seems to have done is it has given other people this, the idea of looking, and so then they run across them and things they read and send them to me, and I'm quite appreciative. In your memoir, Slow Cooked, you mentioned attending the World Economic Forum in 2005 and again in 2017. You described the panels as a means to entertain accompanying spouses and staff while the real movers and shakers have private meetings. Could you provide further insights into your observations and experiences at those two World Economic Forum meetings? Yeah, I mean, I was pretty excited to be invited. I thought, I'm joining the loafers and shakers of the world, me and Angelina Jolie, right? Uh, she was at the one that, um, the first one I attended, and somebody I knew said, who had been to the forum, said, oh, you're going there to entertain the spouses. While the movers and shakers are doing their thing, there are all these forums and panels and this kind of thing for all the other accompanying people who are there, and they're going to come to your things while all these other things are going on. And I was very offended, but he was absolutely right. He's right. <laughs> he was absolutely right. So there are thousands of people attending this, and for somebody like me, these are very difficult meetings because you get handed an online catalog of all of the events that are going on, and you have to sign up for them in advance. And you get handed a gadget that you have to learn how to use to do this. And you don't know what they are, and you don't know which ones you're going to go to, and you can't get into some, and you can't get into others. And the ones that are really important to you are not listed on this. 
you know, they're off camera, are very bad at it. By the time I got around to trying to sign up, most of the things I was signing up for were filled and you couldn't get into them and you could wait online and see if people did show up and then maybe you could get in. So it was very hard. But I did get to see the ones that I did get into were very interesting. And I was also giving talks. And the first one, there were, uh, I just remember, there were a group of African leaders on the stage who were talking. These were heads of countries or very high officials of African countries. And they were talking about the need for bed nets to protect against malaria. And they're saying that they were looking for the money to buy it. And Angelina Jolie got up and said, I'm going to give this much money to bed nets. How about everybody else? And she did a little crowd fund me right there. And the African leaders were so embarrassed. It was, it was just astonishing to watch. And I also went to a session where a reporter from some news outlet said that, as far as he could tell, the American military was targeting United States reporters in Iraq or wherever it was we were at the time. All of these sessions were supposed to be absolutely confidential, and you weren't supposed to talk about what got said at them. But his got out, and he was fired immediately from whatever news outlet he was in. So that was kind of amazing. And it was interesting to, you know, meet the people who were there and go to the sessions and see the way the Chinese leader gave a talk in which he said that China was going to take over the world, and that's exactly what he's doing. You know, it kind of, it, you're in the room. And it's, uh, it's interesting to be in the room always. Did you actually meet Xi Jinping when he was making Absolutely that? Absolutely not. Uh, <laughs> right. No, but I did end up with the souvenir of the Chinese delegation. The Chinese delegation brought several thousand stuffed chickens to give away at the economic forum. I you hear a lot of conspiracies about the World Economic Forum right now. And you think any of the, those things are true or you just think that it's people gathering to... These are rich, entitled people. You know, rich and titled white men, that's what you know, that's what they are. And we're meeting with each other. They're presidents, they're they're presidents of countries, they're very, very high national officials. They're meeting together, they're talking to each other, they're making whatever deals they're making, but the rest of the people who are there don't have any part of that. Right, because you're like you said, you're just basically there to entertain they're the wives and right. <laughs> it's kind of like theater, really, then, I guess. Yeah, it's pretty fantastic theater, I have yeah, to say. it is. In so I felt very privileged to be there. It was really interesting to see it. And the first one, I came back with a Russian hat because the Russian delegation was giving away fur hats. <laughs> and the second one with a stuffed Chinese chicken, which I'm quite fond of. <laughs> Everybody <laughs> needs one. <laughs> right. <laughs> In your book, you mentioned the unique opportunity you had to receive a first-rate education and achieve a solidly middle-class life on a modest academic salary. And you say that this is beyond comprehension for most young people in the United States today. 
What do you think these differences in opportunities between older generations and young people today mean for our society as a whole? Well, it's really shocking to me. It's absolutely shocking. All of my education was at the University of California, Berkeley, from which I hold several degrees. And at the time that I went, just think about this. At the time that I went, I started in college at Berkeley in 1954, and I had saved up $300 from summer work over several years when I was in high school. I had a $300 scholarship from the University of California, and my mother sent me $20 a month. And that was it for my first year of college. I spent exactly $900. And that was something that I could do. I could get a $300 scholarship. I could put together $300 in savings from babysitting and other kinds of jobs. And my mom could afford $20 a month to send to me. I mean, think about that. My room and board, at the, I, I lived at the student co-ops, which cost less than the University of California uh, dormitories. It was $45 a month for room and board. And even at inflated prices today, that's still a cost that is so low that it's just unimaginable. And tuition at the University of California was $32 a semester. So that people like me, who came from really poor families, could afford to go there. And the student co-ops made it possible. I had to work five hours a week in the student co-ops. That was okay. But I could afford to go to Berkeley, and I could afford to get a Berkeley education for really not very much money. And so my education, um, undergraduate degree, doctoral degree, I did have to pay for my master's, but that was $900 for the year also. I mean, it, for just for the tuition, because I was living in the area. But it's much more expensive now just much more. And I finished college without loans. My children finished college without loans. I was able to do that on an academic salary. Now everybody has loans. Loans ruin your life. I remember meeting this lawyer from Harvard who said he was going to work for a one of these big fancy law firms from, for five years and he would pay off his loans. And I said, how much is your loan? He said it was $200,000, and he started to cry. And I thought, yeah, I'd cry too. Yeah, I mean, how do you get out, how do you get out from underneath that? Yeah, that getting out from under that is he thought he could do it in five years of misery at the job that he had. But in a sense, that's a form of slavery. You're enslaved. I didn't have any of that. The first house I bought was $15,000. You know, I mean, it was a different world, an absolutely different world. I mean, you're, you're 86 right now. Was there like a particular year that you just noticed the prices just spiraling out of control? Or was this just like a gradual, you know, kind of the expression or the analogy where the frog is in the, the boiling water? Well, I think it's frog in boiling water. It just happened in stages. I mean, I can count up what the houses cost. So the first one was 15, the second one was 45, the third one was 90. That was the last house I bought. I now rent from New York University. Otherwise, I couldn't afford to live in New York. 
it's just a doubling and doubling and doubling. I think the big shift came in housing prices when about the time I moved to San Francisco, which was in the late 70s. Moved there in 1976, and I remember being told that if we didn't buy the $90,000 house immediately, or if we didn't like it, we could sell it in two months and make an enormous profit on it. So that was when it was a period of skyrocketing housing prices, at least in cities like San Francisco. And then the cost of tuition went up and up and up. And I did all of my education at state schools, but I work at a private university. I can't believe what the tuition is. I mean, it seems unimaginable to me that people can pay that kind of tuition. You have room and board on top of it. How do people have that kind of money? I just don't understand it. And also, because I was going to state schools in California, I know what the difference is. Because at the time that I started college at Berkeley, legislators, California legislators' children went to the University of California schools. They all did. And the legislators didn't want the tuition to go up because their own kids were being educated at these excellent University of California schools. Well, that changed when Reagan became president. I mean, that absolutely changed. And also the free speech movement and the kinds of political activities that went on at Berkeley and other universities, the legislators didn't like that. They didn't want their kids involved in that. So they started cutting back on state support for the University of California, which I think is now below 20%. Well, that means it's impossible for people who don't have any money to go to college unless they can get big fancy scholarships, a lot more than $300 a semester or $300 a year. Yeah, and that, you said that first house he bought for 15000 was that in Berkeley itself as well? No, it was in Richmond. And how far is that from Berkeley? Oh, a few miles. Just a few right. It's really close. Wow. wow. But then, wow. In Slow Cooked, you write, in 1992, I was appointed as a consumer representative to the FDA's first food advisory committee. This gave me an inside look into how this agency came to approve genetically modified foods. What was the GMO approval process like in 1992 when you were on the inside of that? Well, what comes to mind is a hearing that the FDA had in which a lot of people had signed up to speak at this hearing. And the uh, FDA, somebody on the FDA staff, had gotten wind of the idea that Monsanto was sponsoring some of the people who were speaking. The biotechnology companies were told they could send one representative each. And so the FDA asked them under oath to say who had paid for their travel. And one after another after another got up and said that Monsanto had paid for their travel, including, I mean, I'll never forget this pregnant dairy farmer from upstate New York. You know, who was talking about how great bovine somatotropin was for her cows. And she had to admit that she'd been paid by Monsanto to come to the meeting. But Monsanto had a big influence. And they convinced the FDA against, certainly against my better judgment, 
to put this stuff out in the market without labeling it. Oh, I thought it was such a mistake. I, I thought it was going to ruin the industry and that if the companies really wanted the public to accept genetically modified foods, the stuff had to be fully labeled. And that at the time, there would be a couple of small advocacy groups that would complain. But that basically, once the label was on there and people ate the foods and didn't die on the spot, they would be accepted. But Monsanto convinced the FDA that this would be a mistake. And the FDA said, not only not labeling, but you couldn't even say no GMO. You go into a supermarket now, and there are thousands of products that say non-GMO on them, thousands. And I attribute that to a very bad decision, industry-influenced decision that I got to witness. That was interesting to see. Boy, did I think it was a mistake. And too late now. You look at the non-GMO project, it's been enormously successful enormously. And they have just said, you know, no GMOs in our foods. Um, Brian, to think, you know, that was 92 and there were, you had the GMOs and now we have genetically modified animal products, genetically modified beef and things like that. Wasn't that just approved, I think, recently as well? Or? No, just, just the salmon. Was it the salmon? Okay. Just salmon. And I don't even know if it's on the market yet. I roping has no, nobody returns my queries, so I haven't been able to find out. I wrote and asked, where can I get the genetically mod modified salmon? I want to taste one. Yeah, do, do the taste test on that. Or do the taste, taste test. test. And they just never responded. <laughs> so much for their consumer affairs representative. So currently you're you're 86 years old. That's Is that correct? Right, then you and you, you look yeah look amazing for for eighty six right I mean good for you, good nutrition good nutrition yeah, that's what happens when you're a nutritionist. Uh, you write in your book that at the age of sixty six that's when you published Food Politics and you mentioned that this was the start of the most productive and rewarding years of your academic life. Can you kind of share with us your thoughts on achieving career success at a little bit more advanced and mature age in life? No, I think you appreciate it more. Well, I think it's just been wonderful fun. I spent a long time waiting. One of the reasons why I sort of joke that one of the reasons why I wrote from politics was to get better speaking invitations. You have to be careful what you ask for. But it's really pretty nice to be invited to speak to important groups, to go to the World Economic Forum, to get fancy awards here and there. I mean, all of that stuff is really fun. I enjoyed a lot. And I don't always feel that I deserved it. You know, there's imposter syndrome. It continues. But it's been really fun. It's a great way to get old. I'm, I'm not complaining. The Food Pyramid was created to promote health and wellness to the American people. And it seems like now, I think, was a the obesity rate has tripled in the last few decades. What do you think has gone wrong since we've been having this push for better health and nutrition in America? Well, people are eating more and they're eating larger portions. I actually think that larger portions are a sufficient explanation for obesity. You don't really need anything more complicated than that. People eat what's in front of them. If you're given a muffin that's got 600 calories, you're going to eat 
all 600 of those calories. If the muffin is 200, you'll eat 200. Big difference. We now know through a phenomenal amount of research that the food industry has produced foods that they fall into a category that's called ultra-processed, that are foods formulated to be delicious or to be irresistible. You can't eat just one. And as more and more of those products are produced in larger and larger amounts, people eat more. These are delicious foods. Everybody loves them. They're heavily advertised. They're iconic American foods. When you look at when sugar-sweetened beverages went from 8 ounces to 12 ounces to 16 to liter sizes, they exactly track with rising rates of obesity. I don't think it's very complicated to understand it. We're human. We respond to visual cues. We eat what's in front of us. We eat what we like. We eat what everybody else around us is eating. And if we're given enormous portions, we eat enormous portions. And there is plenty of evidence that the number of calories that people are eating has gone up and gone up in parallel with rising rates of obesity. So I don't think it requires a very complicated understanding of it. It's people don't eat meals anymore. People are less physically active. Kids are less physically active because they're on their phones all the time. All of these are changes in society that promote more caloric intake and less caloric expenditure and very difficult to reverse. You close the book by saying, quote, despite my best efforts, nutrition professionals continue to have financial ties to food companies without recognizing or acknowledging the influence of such ties, even though conflicted interests contribute to public distrust of nutritional research and advice, end of quote. Do you think we're going to see more transparency, not just in the nutritional field, but in general? And do you see any signs that will contribute to the reversing of the obesity and the consequences health-related, like diabetes and and things like that. Do you think we'll see a reverse of that and get back to people having a healthier, happier life? Um, two. There were two questions in that, and I've already forgot the first one. What was the first one? The first one is, do you think we'll see maybe less industry funding moving oh, forward? No. See, it's gotten no, way worse. Yeah. No, if anything, it's going the other way. As the government funds less and less, uh, research industry has moved into the breach, I think conflicts of interest are really bad because the fact that they're unrecognized means that people aren't careful enough about what they mean and what it means to be doing this kind of research. And yeah, one of the things you're supposed to do if you're a scientist is to be extremely critical of your own work. It's hard to do that if funding gets tossed into it. And because the industry has been so successful in finding scientists who are willing to do this kind of work and who, what a coincidence, produced just the results that the companies want. What a coincidence. I don't see that stopping. If anything, it's getting, there's more and more of it. On what can be done to reverse obesity, that's a really tough one. We now have these new miracle drugs that were discovered to help reverse type 2 diabetes. 
And one of the things you can do if you want to reverse type 2 diabetes is to lose weight. But losing weight is very, very difficult for people to do in today's food environment with food, delicious food available in all places all day long and in very large amounts. It's really hard for people to deal with that. So maybe these drugs will have a big effect. I don't know. Remains to be seen. They're just out. We're going to see lots of studies of them eventually, I think, but not for a while. I think it's an enormous experiment. I'm very curious to see how it plays out. And everybody who's taking them is doing that experiment because not much is known about what their long-term side effects are. We're going to find out what those are. And it's a lifetime drug, and you have to pay for it. And they're expensive. So it's unclear how all of that is going to play out, but I'm watching it with great interest. Um, To get people to do what is necessary, which is to eat less and move more, there's a big pushback about that. Although from a thermodynamic standpoint, it absolutely works every time. It's just really hard to do in our society. And so the big question is, how do you set up society to make healthier eating easier for people? That's really the question. And unfortunately, the other stuff is much more profitable. So there's an enormous vested interest in keeping the system the way it's going because it makes lots of money for food companies, and food companies are doing really well these days. Yeah, and they also make all this confusion. Like you say it's simple, move more, eat less, but then people try to make it way more complicated to to basically... Yeah, all I can say is that you can... If you can figure out a way to do it, it works every time. Yeah, it works. It's figuring out how to do it that's hard. So there's two final questions. First one, just let us know where people can reach you. Where can people get your book? What's the best place to buy your book? And then secondly, what is your final thought that you'd like to leave the audience with? Okay. Well, I have a website, foodpolitics.com, that I post on five days a week usually. And it's got information about my talks, my books, my interviews, anything you want to know, there it is. My life is an open book at foodpolitics.com, and I can be reached very easily. You can find my email address through that and all kinds of things. It's not very private. And you could subscribe to the blog and have it delivered to your email very easily. It used to go out over Twitter, but Twitter stopped that or somebody stopped that. Final thoughts? I'm very much a subscriber to Michael Pollan's Eat Food Not Too Much, Mostly Plants. I think as if you want to eat healthfully, that's really all there is to it. Uh, you know, you do eat, eat real foods, balance physical activity with what you eat, and eat a lot of plant foods, and enjoy what you eat. It's Food is one of life's greatest pleasures, and you never want to lose sight of that. Well, thank you so much, Marion, for joining us. I really appreciated it. And hopefully next time, we, well, hopefully we can talk one more time in the future. I'd be happy to. This was fun. Thanks so much. That is it for this episode of El Podcast. And once again, if you guys aren't subscribed yet, please consider subscribing. And find us on Rumble, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts as well. We thank you all dearly for watching and listening. I will see you on the next episode.